Hello everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome back to another edition of our Data on Kubernetes community podcast. Today we sat down with Nikhil Chandrapa, who talked to us about Yugabyte DB and what kind of design decisions their team looked at when architecting a database as a service on Kubernetes. I hope that you learned something and you enjoy it. As always, jump into our Slack. You can find the link to that in the show notes. Let's go ahead and get started. So let's give a big round or warm welcome, round of applause for my man, Nikhil. I really appreciate you jumping on here and joining us. This is awesome. I'm excited to talk to you today about what it it takes, what we're looking at when we want to do this um, work with Yugabyte and and do these kind of yep. equal distributed databases. So. I, uh, I'm going to start off by going over what I usually start off with. And that is, I want to just ask you how you got into tech. And I know you got some slides prepared for us later, but maybe I'll ask you a few questions. Please, anyone that is here with us today, feel free to ask questions while Nikhil is talking or um, while he's giving his presentation. And I can always jump in and ask him the questions. So, Nikhil, let's go ahead and get started. That was a long talk from me. <laughs> so now I'd love to hear from you. What exactly got you into tech? So firstly, thanks a lot, Dimitrios, for a warm welcome. So for me, like I think tech uh, was always the like the stream that I wanted to go because I kind of grew up uh, like a proper gamer. I probably spent uh, like 10 to 12 hours a day doing uh, like playing games on my Nintendo, things like that. So that's how I got into uh, undergrad in computer science. And then I have a master's in computer science as well, where I kind of concentrated on uh, distributed systems. And kind of distributed systems and databases itself, I was uh, uh, kind of intrigued uh, because uh, that was a time when people were started moving from J2EE to like some you know, cloud native microservices kind of a pattern and they started seeing like all the big data workloads come in, right? Like it went from being like tens of gigs to like terabytes of data and that I read like being in masters, obviously we kind of probably have read through all the Hadoop page base and all those papers, right? Like that's how I kind of uh, developed some interest in distributed uh, systems. And then Pivotal was one of the big, big data players back then when I joined them in 2015, I guess. We had uh, Pivotal Hadoop, we had Hawk, which is like a MPP-based query engine and things like that. It was like a really good uh, um, like experience for me joining as a new, new fresher from college to uh, uh, getting into big data systems. That's how I kind of transitioned from big data, then also cloud-native data services, building data APIs, data pipelines, and things like that. That's how I got into tech. So I've always been in uh, tech, yeah. Awesome, awesome. So I love the transition from being a gamer and then wanting to know what's going on behind these games and yeah. figuring it out. Now, yeah. um, and just so so we know, you're in New York now, you're originally from New York or where, where did you come from and what no. did that journey look like? 
correct. So I'm uh, originally from uh, a city called Mysore in southern part of India. Mm. Uh, so I grew up there. I did my engineering there, and I came to US for my masters. I went to upstate New York, Syracuse University, uh, for my masters in computer science, and then uh, I started working in New York. Uh, so that's how I've been living in New York for close to like seven years now. Uh, so it's been great. Uh, New York, New Jersey. I've been in and around of this. Sweet. So today we're coming or we're going to talk about a practical look at running distributed SQL on Kubernetes. And I wanted to kind of leave it to you to, to talk us through this and what made you want to talk to us about that. Correct. So uh, for me, right, like I have prepared a bunch of slides that I can go through like few of them, like uh, to just get started what distributed SQL itself means, right? So I wanted to give a, a quick background of uh, what distributed SQL is and why are, why Gigabyte is trying to build a new database called distributed SQL, right? That's something uh, that probably interests a lot of people. So a uh, quick background of Yugabyte itself. Uh, Yugabyte actually has its roots in Facebook. So you, a bunch of co-founders uh, from Yugabyte were actually uh, the ones responsible for the main data engineering efforts for scaling Facebook wall and messenger back in the day. From 2007 to 2012, um, I don't know if you have seen uh, some reports, they grew from like 50 million to a billion users. So they were the ones who incubated PHPace and Cassandra within, uh, you, uh, within wow. Facebook. So one of my co-founders, Karthik, he is the one responsible for uh, naming Cassandra, Cassandra. He, he came up with that name, right? So uh, they had like a lot of experience building like all these uh, uh, high performance and uh, like low latency, like massive scalable databases, right? One thing they saw was there was a lack of uh, adoption of uh, like ground up databases, like in relational workloads, like RDBMS systems, which can scale linearly, right? We didn't have that. Like all we have is like a, a HA mechanism for RDBMS. We have masters and a bunch of uh, followers. We, we never have a sharded architecture in that case. You cannot like scale the rights uh, the way you can scale the rights in NoSQL uh, databases, right? So that's why they saw like there's an opportunity to bring in the like all the goodness and uh, like the versatility that the RDBMS and relational system brings to the scalability, like to the linear scalability and the globally global data distribution. So this, this kind of uh, Yugabyte is based, it's kind of inspired from uh, uh, Google Spanner uh, paper. Like if you have seen uh, a Google Spanner, Google Spanner is also one of the first distributed SQL databases, which kind of supports globally distributed transactions, right? So Yugabyte actually followed some of those principles it's just that we wanted to bring the entire RDBMS capabilities as well, rather than building a new query language. So that's why we started Yugabyte, where it kind of provides Postgres compatibility for a sharded data set. So that's what distributed SQL is for us. And I wanted to talk about uh, why the topic on Kubernetes, because hmm. there was like a lot of decisions we had to make very big, uh, very early in uh, when building the product. We wanted to build something which is which was cloud native from ground up, right? Like doing some of the management operations, everything is like REST API, I mean, API based. And we have uh, out of the box metrics that kind of 
and QSort metrics to Prometheus. We support zero downtime upgrades. Software upgrades are super simple. We are, uh, we are able to like manage multi-cloud deployments, things like that. So those are the things that kind of interest people uh, when we talk to our customers as well. Like what are the approach you guys took and how are you able to make simplify the database uh, deployment for all these complex infrastructures, right? On the cloud, like uh, that's that's what I wanted to uh, talk about in this uh, presentation. Awesome, yeah. Let's get into it because that does sound really interesting. And okay. another uh, sounds good. Yeah, let me start sharing my screen in that case. Perfect. Yeah, and I know you had mentioned that you also wanted to talk about like these design considerations and the design principles and, and yes, so I thought correct. that would... So before I go there, like I just wanted to introduce a few, uh, few concepts of Yugabyte itself so that it is easier for folks to understand why we had, why we made those decisions, right? So without knowing the, uh, like the product itself, if I start to explain this, like uh, it, it kind of becomes redundant and uh, people might not get the clear picture. Uh, okay. Uh, obviously, I'll just, just skip from a bunch of these things. I just wanted to say like Kubernetes mm. is like super massively popular. Like everybody uh, from big enterprises to like startups are deploying their workloads on Kubernetes. Like if you have seen any KubeCons, like all these e-commerce providers, they run their uh, workloads on Kubernetes itself. I mean, obviously everything's hired with uh, deploying stateless applications on the Kubernetes, but there has been a considerable shift in the ecosystem, like most of many of the major database vendors and the stateful vendors like uh, Apache, Kafka, Spark, uh, Mongo, Cassandra, Elastic, and a bunch of these uh, this uh, data tool set, right? Like everybody is deploying on Kubernetes or have a deployment capability on Kubernetes, right? So how is it? How was it possible? So some of the main things. Uh, like Kubernetes actually started bringing like as Kubernetes matured, right? Like back in 2017, I guess, when we were part of uh, Pivotal, we started working with uh, Confluent and Datastax for bringing their solution onto uh, PKS, which is like Pivotal Container Service, which was one of the managed services we had back then. Back then, it was so, so complicated to set up a database system or any stateful, set, stateful system, right? We didn't have support for stateful sets. It was still in alpha. It was so flaky. And we had to use replica sets, and replica sets didn't support uh, rolling upgrades. And volume provisioning didn't support uh, like uh, the container uh, uh, interface, uh, the container mode interface. It recently it came out, right? Like in 110, I guess it became GA. So all those things kind of uh, matured the Kubernetes system itself to build uh, a databases. For us, what it means is like few things that actually stands out. Uh, for why it makes sense to run a distributed, I mean, a database on Kubernetes. Obviously, it provides a better resource utilization, first thing. And if you don't have to wait for like months together, like to stand up a database, right? Like it used to happen before when you stand up on a vSphere VM or things like that. So now, uh, obviously, better cluster utilization and you'll support a multi tenancy uh, with. Uh, Kubernetes because you can deploy different multiple clusters in different namespaces and uh, things like that. And one uh, important thing that Kubernetes kind of matured was with CRDs. C 
CRDs is custom resource definitions where you can specify your own CRD and uh, kind of uh, specify the logic for uh, doing reconciling of the uh, resources that you are utilizing on the Kubernetes cluster itself, right? So every day two operation for a database is different. And the way to implement that is obviously through CRDs. So as CRDs matured, more and more uh, database vendors started deploying operators so, so can, they can do a lot of automation of their day two operation. None of, the, none of those things needs to be manual, right? So that's why uh, I feel like a lot of database vendors started to get uh, uh, deploying their uh, data services on KAs. When I gave a brief background on Yucabyte, obviously there uh, it's uh, has its roots in Facebook and a bunch of co-founders like everyone are from Facebook. And do you mind if I stop you real fast on yeah. along the lines of that maturity and how you've seen it change from 2017 till now? Yeah. Are there things that you're actively looking ahead in the future to and you're expecting to change Correct. in the next three years or even just within the next 24 months? Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know if you have not seen, like one of the things that uh, a lot of people, uh, a lot of developers or a lot of companies working on is like uh, two things. One is bringing a native API gateway support for Kubernetes, like, and also service mesh support for Kubernetes, right? There's like. Istio, there's VMware has its own, and Google has its own, things like that. So that's where uh, more maturity will come in uh, on Kubernetes, like how to manage the traffic within the Kubernetes cluster itself. And one other thing for a, as a database company that I'm looking forward to is like uh, uh, support of uh, like some of these newer age database vendors, so, uh, newer age uh, block device vendors, right? Block storage vendors who provides native capability for uh, uh, like data uh, storage management. So which means like right now, if I have to build my database, I need to know what is the storage classes for different uh, storage providers, right? Like GCP, it is different. EKS, it's different. If I go to vSphere, it's different. OpenStack is different. So I don't have to maintain that thing uh, where I have to test the compatibility for each and everything. So. There is like uh, these vendor, uh, vendors like Portworx who, who kind of abstract away that layer where uh, they take care of all the complexity of managing the uh, block storage. And for me, as a database vendor, all I care is like I'll make a PVC claim and I just need to get the TV right. So that's another thing where we see uh, some uh, lot more adoption will come in, uh, I think, in the Kubernetes for stateful workloads itself. Uh, as and when more, more and more uh, uh, customers start to productionize their uh, data workloads on Kubernetes, I see those things to be uh, super useful. Yeah, I mean, sure. Istio at least is going to be super useful because it's going to solve a lot of things. Like it's going to solve uh, solve you like uh, encryption between your clients and uh, uh, like databases. It's going to support uh, some authorization for your traffic and things like that. So I think Istio or any uh, service mesh is going to be like next 24 months, probably that's going to be like the most interesting thing. Hmm. Perfect. All right. I'll let you get back to what you were talking about. Yeah. Cool. Uh, we talked about the brief history. Like, okay. Uh, I, what distributed SQL actually means for us, right? So distributed SQL for us means our any of the other database vendors that if you talk to who, uh, who are part of distributed SQL, one thing they talk, talk about is like they are massively scalable, which means they can horizontally scale. 
So most of the databases can only scale vertically. You cannot shard the data, right? Generally, like with a distributed SQL databases, the first notion you have is you can partition the data or you can shard the data on commodity hardware. And also the next thing that they bring in out of the box is a geo distribution of data, which means as and when more and more architecture embrace global apps, right? Where they deploy the applications across regions or across cloud and things like that, you need to have the data also reside in the same place. So for uh, better experience, HA and things like that. So geo distribution is provided provided natively. And SQL capabilities, where you can provide all the RDBMS features for uh, to some of these new age stuff like scaling and geo-distribution. If you're able to bring all those capabilities to the developer on top of that, where you can build resilience like HA and fault tolerance for cloud outages and things like that, that's gonna be a very useful product to be have in your system. Like even if you have cloud outages or region outages, you're still have some data somewhere where you can keep your uh, uh, business operation going, right? You, you, you if per, per se, if uh, US East of AWS goes down, it shouldn't bring down your entire uh, business, right? That shouldn't happen. So distributed SQL uh, kind of tries to solve that. Uh, for us, we kind of fit into all these three uh, uh, characteristics uh, for distributed SQL. Obviously, it needs to be highly performant. You need to have low latency and uh, we need to be cloud native which means you should be able to deploy on any of the cloud uh, providers cloud infrastructure whether it's private cloud public cloud on platforms like kubernetes cloud foundry and also uh, it needs to have an open source adoption in the community like if you don't build any community around your product it will be like another big oracle i guess i mean open source community right you'll just start building in vendor lock-ins and things like that so for us, uh, that's why uh, we kind of open source a product back in 2018, like the, uh, the at core, everything is 100% uh, 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 Apache open source. Like if you guys are interested in uh, looking into contributing to the project, you can come and check out our uh, issues page and or join our Slack. We are very responsive there. And uh, you can get some swags as well from your team. Uh, obviously, we are not the only players. Uh, in distributed SQL, uh, like why one more database, right? Why one more database called Yugabyte? Uh, there's like few things that we kind of compare Yugabyte against. That is firstly Amazon Aurora and Google Spanner. These, those are like some of the more established players already in the market. So Amazon Aurora, if you have not, uh, if you have not seen the reports, they are like one of the fastest growing AWS uh, services out there. The reason being they kind of uh, provides a highly highly available RDBMS system, uh, which can which can provide you HA, uh, but not scaling. You cannot write scale still, there is like some limitations to it, but you can provide a HA. But what Google Spanner did is Google Spanner took a different route. They wanted to build a completely new database, which is horizontally scalable and strongly consistent based on graph consensus algorithm and atomic clocks for doing distributed transactions. So this is the one of the first truly globally consistent uh, databases that came into the market, which kind of bags Google Ad Engine and things like that. Uh, but one thing uh, about Google Spanner is it is not a uh, fully RDBMS system. There's like a bunch of features like uh, foreign key constraints and all those things are missing in Google Spanner. So they kind of went ahead and built their own SQL syntax, which kind of has its own limitations where you have to refactor all your existing apps, 
and all the tools that you use with your database needs to be rethought out, things like that. So that's why Amazon Aurora probably has more uh, kind of utilization or adoption in the market than Google Spanner, but both are uh, a really popular project. So what Yugabyte wanted to do was, Yugabyte wanted to take all these uh, goodness or like the versatility of an IDBMS system and bring it to uh, the Google Spanner like horizontal scalability and globally consistent transactions. That's how uh, Yugabyte was, uh, that's like the motto or like the mission of Yugabyte to bring in the distributed SQL features to the global scalability. The way we do that is uh, we have a layered approach for doing it. Obviously, like even our, uh, it's a, obviously it's a clustered database and even our uh, internal, uh, the way the transaction and all works is uh, inspired from uh, Google Spanner. It's based on rack consensus algorithm. Uh, we don't use atomic clocks, we use logical clocks. Uh, there's like a really good uh, uh, presentation one of my co-founders did on explaining how we use the logical clocks uh, and how the SKUs and all those things work in ours. Uh, explaining how the distributed transaction works when we deploy it across multiple clouds, right? So that's a really good talk that if you guys are really interested in how our uh, internals work, uh, it's a really good talk to, uh, you can just Google for uh, Yugabyte logical clock uh yeah we can link that. to that too in the show notes yeah i can do that uh so yeah where was i like probably we have uh, we have two layers of uh, two layers right we said that we follow layered approach so at the bottom we have something called as docs db it's a derivative of rocks db which is highly optimized for our uh, distributed transactions the way we want it to be done um it is actually the one which is responsible for doing the sharding of the data, providing strong consistencies, provide asset transactions. On top of that, we have a pluggable query engine where we support two APIs. Uh, first, we support like a fully relational SQL API, which is Postgres compliant, which is for relational workloads. And also we support a new a second API called SQL Cloud Query Language, which is a NoSQL based data access, which is Cassandra compliant. I mean, Cassandra require compliant depending upon the use case you have and the access pattern you have, you can architect your applications for either of the, these APIs, either of the, these APIs, right? Like if your workload is always gonna be a key fetch and if it's gonna grow to terabytes or hundreds of terabytes, obviously having a NoSQL uh, Cassandra-like uh, query access makes sense. But if you have a lot of queries, a lot of joins and indexes that you use uh, while querying the data, SQL, YSQL uh, API is the one that uh, you need to architect against, architect against. So any questions, this is like the crux of what Yugabyte provides out of the box. So any questions on this? Uh, so I've got a question while we're waiting for people to yeah. type in the chat if they have anything. Um, this, is, this might be a good opportunity to jump into what I had asked you before, but I didn't want you to get too far into it before we were yeah. actually in the meetup on how the latency between nodes impacts Correct. the commit time of a transaction. Uh, yes, let me get to that part. Uh, before that, uh, in this slide, I just wanted to say Yugabyte uh, is a no, uh, it's like a shared nothing architecture. Like every node is identical and has the same thing, like apps can connect to any of them and fetch the data. It need not go to one particular node to fetch the data, right? So going one step further, this is where the question uh, Dimitrios asked, uh, we can explain that, how it actually works. So within Yugabyte, 
uh, each table is actually split into what we call as tablets. Tablet is nothing but a, nothing but a shard, right? So the if I have a four node cluster, uh, my table, uh, say if it starts out with uh, four tablets, right? It kind of spreads across all these nodes. And each of those tablets is a part of a raft group. Raft is the uh, uh, transaction consensus algorithm we use for internally to maintain highly consistent uh, system, right? So the way it actually works is each tablet, whenever the data gets written into a tablet, it makes a raft uh, uh, call for uh, making the copy across all the other tablets in the cluster, which means if I have a replication factor of three, which means like I have three copies of data, one primary and other two, which acts as a backup. So raft uh, consistent algorithm will make, uh, uh, will, uh, will go ahead and copy the data or will go ahead and commit the data on these three transactions. Internally, uh, there is a logical clock, uh, uh, clock that we kind of maintain for these transactions. It needs, it need not be atomic clock, right? Like we are not considering that everyone has an atomic clock lying around. We still are based on a logical clock and we kind of maintain the skew of how, how much the clock is skewed between the nodes to figure out which transactions wins the commit, right? So obviously in such cases, it does matter uh, how the latency of the uh, uh, latency between the nodes. So we have, uh, 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 for us, uh, like if I, if I use uh, NTP, right? NTP has a, uh, probably five or six milliseconds, I guess. That's what it uh, returns the uh, uh, returns the clock time. Uh, so, and between that, we have five 30 second timeouts or uh, waits when we try to do the retries of the transactions. So, obviously, um, if I'm if I'm doing a transaction across multi cloud or multi region, if the transaction takes more than uh, whatever the threshold I have, the transaction will fail. Uh, for a highly performant transaction, we expect uh, all the writes to be going to a logical group of nodes which sits in the same data center so that you will have fast writes. And then internally, it can take care of writing it to the other cluster, maybe in the different region hmm. or other nodes Perfect. which are in the different region, uh, oh, which yeah. is kind of the H for the HA yeah, scenario, for sure. right? Thank you for that. Uh, to, uh, I mean, it was a pretty uh, detailed explanation, like for. Uh, 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 simple, simply putting it together, we uh, the latency between nodes actually do matter when you are uh, doing a highly performance system. We have built some guardrails around how much clock skews that you can uh, handle within a cluster and how many retries you can do for a transaction. So all these things only come to the picture when you are doing a transaction. If you are do not doing a transaction, these things will not come into the picture. Hopefully that answers the question to a certain extent. Okay, cool. Yeah, uh, and also one other thing that if you see, like we have two components in the cluster. One is uh, called YB master Excellent. and the T server. Uh, YB master is nothing but like a coordinator set of nodes which are responsible for uh, election of uh, leader election of the tablets. So in the raft consensus algorithm, always you'll have a leader and two followers. So this master is responsible for coordinating that leader election. 
So the date, there is no traffic that was gonna go through that master. It is just for coordination purposes. And all the data access and the data storage actually happens in the servers, which are the ones which is responsible for storing the node, storing the data itself, which is based on uh, DocDB. So, yeah. Uh, that's that's how we we are able to scale Postgres SQL. Uh, we are reusing the upper half of Postgres uh, query uh, query layer in our uh, deployments. Mm, and underneath, what we have is the DocDB layer where we do a lot of pushdowns, which means that we are not bringing all the data to one of the nodes where the query was received. We kind of take yeah. that query and uh, we have our uh, query optimization algorithm, which gonna do pushdowns of uh, uh, all the queries to other DocDB layers so that wherever the data actually resides, it performs its operation there. The queries are filtering, whatever, right? It, it goes through the DocDB layer and only the results are returned to the SQL. So that's how uh, we are able to scale the uh, relational workloads uh, with Yugabyte DB. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, it's like uh, this itself is a whole topic. I, I will not, uh, uh, we, we can do one more session for that if there is an appetite. But I just wanted to go uh, directly into like some of the Kubernetes topics, right? Uh, so these are the three main uh, deployment topologies we kind of see uh, that our customers use. So obviously, one is uh, within a single region, you can deploy across multiple AZs. So if it's a AWS East region, you can deploy it on one A, one B, one C. Obvious, uh, this actually uh, provides you uh, a failover between like whenever you have like a zone outage and things like that, your database will not go down. Still, you'll have a, a highly performing system uh, running. The other thing is like single cloud multi-region. Say you can have uh, the database deployed across US East, West, and Central, and you can mark one of the regions as a leader region. So that all the writes go to that region and uh, the reads can go to any region and it can be consistently read because we are still saying uh, uh, we are a highly consistent uh, system across regions as well. And the third approach is you can deploy Yugabyte across multiple uh, clouds as well. The same cluster, the nodes will be spread out or spread across multiple nodes. So a lot of our customers have this setup where they have uh, uh, two zones uh, within their data center and the third zone will sit in a public cloud so that uh, they can easily scale out the cluster or they can have uh, in case of data center outage they still have availability so these are the main topologies that uh, we support with yugabyte and currently on kubernetes the first one which is the multi-zone support that's the one that is currently uh, we support and we are uh, working towards supporting multi-region on kubernetes for that to happen, Kubernetes itself needs to provide uh, multi-region support, right? It, is, it, it, it should allow how to uh, do a DNS lookup of uh, the pod in a different uh, Kubernetes cluster, things like that. That is only available in GKE. We do support it on GKE for uh, on-premise or other installations. We are thinking of uh, working with uh, Submariner or uh, some of the other things that are uh, new to the uh, place to kind of support this multi-region deployments. So uh, in today's talk, I'm gonna just uh, go over like what are the design decisions that we that had doesn't to take fly. for single region deployment of Kubernetes. Okay, now coming to the actual stuff, uh, YB on K8. So as I said, uh, we wanted to 
develop a cloud native database from ground up right what does that mean right like there's like obviously we ha we had to do a bunch of design decisions early on to figure kind of define what those actually means for us so first thing obviously uh, our relational workloads we need to be able to scale them on demand we are able to do that by sharding our uh, uh, data across all the available nodes and the second thing uh, that we wanted to uh, support was everything should be api driven like if you want to determine the state of the cluster if you want to do some admin operations on the cluster all those things should be api driven so that it can be easily integrated with any of your ci cd pipelines and similar to how you might have done your stateful applic stateless application like part of your uh, like say uh, how you deploy stateless application uh, using uh, Jenkins or uh, any of your CI CD provider. You can do the same thing with Yugabyte, uh, uh, I mean, the database also, and also know the state of the cluster. And the second thing is we should be supporting out of the box uh, uh, metrics and support some of the newer uh, metrics, uh, uh, metrics providers like Prometheus. We kind of pack Prometheus in all our nodes. So which kind of gives you metrics. You can hook up uh, Grafana or whatever uh, dashboard you want to Yucabyte. You'll natively see all the metrics coming up. So these are the things that uh, we had to like think through at, when building the product. And this kind of provided us a uh, uh, like step up when we were architecting our solution for Kubernetes. Like in Kubernetes, when I'm building CRDs, right? So let's just take a situation where I want to uh, like upgrade my cluster. So uh, during my during my upgrades, like I need to first understand what's the state of my cluster. A cluster is right in uh, the CRD itself. Like in the Go client, either I can uh, I need to write a bunch of uh, bash scripts to find out what the state of the cluster is, or I can make an API call to determine what the state of the cluster is. Right. So using that, I can reconcile the uh, the operations. So if uh, the cluster state itself is uh, unhealthy and I kind of go and start doing a rolling upgrade of the cluster, obviously it will fail and you'll burn yourself. So all these things you can actually implement all the edge cases using CRDs and operator. And it, it was easy for us to implement all those things because we had all those things already available readily for us using APIs. We didn't have to build anything new uh, just to make it uh, work on Kubernetes. And uh, since uh, resiliency plays a, a very important role when you are deploying to cloud, you never know when there is a failure of your pod or the nodes that hosted by Kubernetes or the entire region hosted by Kubernetes, right? So in that situation, you need to know uh, how your product works in case of infrastructure failures, like uh, how much uh, failure you can take and how can you automatically uh, recover the data, backup the data, and things like that. We support all those things out of the box. Like you can specify automated backups, and you can restore another cluster using those backup and things like that. Uh, and the second thing, which is uh, I think most of us would already uh, know about, is like supporting zero time upgrades is super important. You cannot take any downtimes when you are in production. Like having a downtime for even an hour, two hours, like in the new age. Uh, uh, cloud native applications, right? That will that will be a very bad experience for the users. So, yeah, that won't fly, right? Like that's why you kind of have to support zero downtime upgrades. 
the way we kind of do it we kind of uh, do zero downtime upgrades like doing one pod at a time or batch of pod at a time depending upon how comfortable you are at, uh, based on the load you get things like that so you, you can specify all those things in our uh, when you set up the cluster itself so uh, yugabyte is deployed as a stateful set on kubernetes so we have two stateful sets as i said so we have one for the yb master itself and one for the uh, yb t server so those run as a separate pod within a same namespace so these six uh, like a minimum uh, Cuban, like a minimum cluster of uh, minimum yugabyte cluster on kubernetes will have six pods three masters and three c servers masters will be of uh, uh, master consumes lesser resources like uh, two vcpus or four gig or whatever t servers are the one you need to size it based on the workload if you have uh, a workload uh, where you want to store 100 gigs of data uh, pro sorry 100 or 100 terabytes or 10 terabytes whatever right so you can have to size your disk you have to size your uh, cpus and uh, 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 ram accordingly and we kind of provide a t-shirt sizes like small small medium large depending upon how much uh, data that you want to store uh, i'm going to walk you through all these things in our uh, uh, in the next demo and get, uh, getting to that on top of that obviously it's a stateful set we have headless services uh, that kind of takes care if you are running a application within kubernetes cluster itself you can just connect to one of the uh, uh, clients to headless service of the T servers, it can get the data access. If you are, have an app which is running outside of Kubernetes cluster, we can expose a load balancer where the traffic can go through the load balancer. Uh, let me quickly give you like a live demo of what I explained right now on our Kubernetes. Uh, so this Thing what you are seeing right now, uh, we call it as Yugabyte platform. So this is the one, it's like a orchestrator. If we are using uh, some other uh, uh, vendors out there, like uh, probably MongoDB, I guess MongoDB has a similar product called uh, Ops Manager, where they are uh, where they take care of orchestrating their database using that. So Yugabyte platform is our orchestrator for Kubernetes and other cloud providers. So First thing, uh, the Yugabyte platform itself, it runs as a pod uh, within Kubernetes. So it's nothing but uh, a Node.js Node in the Play Framework app that we have written, uh, in our, which, may, which can uh, do all the day two operations and uh, creation. Uh, it kind of supports the DB as a service for us on any cloud provider. Uh, the first thing that we, anyone uh, can do with Yugabyte is we kind of support all the cloud providers out there in the market today. So we can take care of orchestrating our uh, 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 like creation of our clusters, depending upon the cloud provider that you want to do. So uh, in my case, uh, I am doing a managed uh, service, a managed Kubernetes service on GKE. So that's why I have configured a con, uh, con I have a configuration which supports the Kubernetes deployment. So if you uh, take a look on what the configuration actually itself does for us, is uh, it just takes kubeconfig and a bunch of service uh, like service accounts where where do I get the image, and also we are specifying the regions like where do I have to deploy my cluster and things like that. All these things you de uh, define here. 
one important thing we also do as part of this well which i'll come back to uh, as i go through my slides is the storage classes right uh, it's a database and if you see number of uh, csi drivers out there for uh, kubernetes it's like there's a long list all the uh, like traditional providers like dell uh, emc dell emc vmware everyone has their own uh, way and gkh aws everyone has their own stuff right so we didn't want to bake our uh, uh, product against a particular vendor so we kind of support any storage class which has a, a very good ssd performance so the 99 percentile should be good enough that you uh, so that you can uh, have a highly performant system so that's all we have as a prerequisite so for that reason what we did was we Uh, provided an option to specify the storage class that any uh, uh, any operator want to run run against. Uh, so we don't have any hardcore requirements around the uh, like hardcore tie-ins. Like we have requirements on how SSDs need to perform, but not what kind of SSDs or what provider we need. Things like that. Is there is no vendor lock-in to your uh, uh, disk providers as well. And if you want to use like all these new vendors like uh, Portworx, uh, you can just go ahead and. Uh, we work against those products as well. Yeah, and can we jump into that a little bit more? Like this, this idea of um, the new vendors or this container attached storage and how that would work. Like, because I know there's Portworx, there's open source ones like OpenEBS, and yeah. what what does that look like if it's integrated into this? uh so like if you if you know how uh, some of these csi providers work they kind of create their own drivers right so they create their own drivers and they register or deploy their uh, drivers in the kubernetes cluster uh for a database vendor like me uh it doesn't matter how they orchestrate the workload behind the scene for me uh, the only contract for me is whenever i do a pvc call i should get a pv back which can be attached to my uh, container how that gets orchestrated behind the scene it's very transparent to the application here so each of them have a different way of doing it uh, it uh, it's based on the storage that's how they create a storage class and the corresponding driver so if you see a storage class definition of these drivers right so this is like the uh, csi vsphere vmware.com like that is one of their uh, Uh, storage class provider or the storage class driver similar to that uh, current currently what i am using is i am using uh, the google cloud storage right like i'm using the gcs for uh, uh, my demos here so that's how it becomes transparent for the application so it depends on how like the watch storage class that you have uh, i quickly show define the storage class i have like oh nice So if you see, I have the GKE PD uh, storage class for my for me, right? Like I have two things. Like I wanted to have like a fast SSD as well and a standard one for demo purposes. Like if you're doing a performance test or things like that, I'll just use SSD. If not, I'll just use a lesser uh, costing uh, disk drive, I guess. So similar to this, you can specify any number of storage classes you want or whichever provider you have. And all I need. uh for in yugabyte is for you to give me which storage class to use and that storage class needs to be installed on the cluster already 
So some of the earlier versions didn't have this capability where they always used to say, okay, this is the GFS, uh, cluster FS is the only supported version I have, or things like that. So we didn't want to do that kind of uh, hard uh, 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 like re uh, requirements hmm. uh, when it comes to disk itself. Because yeah, it makes it much more seamless yeah. integration. Correct. It seems like. Seamless integration, right, yeah. Uh, and also, even in that, uh, there's a few things that we can do uh, to perform, uh, uh, ensuring the high performance, right? Uh, so we do support local storage space. Like if you have uh, a local storage where we are, you want to pre-provision your cluster, sorry, SSDs, so some of these big enterprises, they don't want to just spin up any number of SSDs. They, it's an operational nightmare. So what they do is they pre-provision it and they give you like, this is the uh, disk that you want to use or things like that. So that's what we kind of recommend when, when if you are running very high performance systems on uh, Kubernetes. Like if you're looking to run like a hundreds of case ops per second, things like that, your SSD performance matters a lot. So uh, all these uh, uh, now GKE kind of provides a uh, provides good stuff, uh, uh, good throughput for uh, uh, IOPS for SSDs. But we have seen very good performance on EKS for uh, C54X large uh, VMs and the EBS that gets attached to those VMs. Uh, like you know, most of our PERS that uh, we kind of do that. And uh, it it is uh, linear, like directly dependent upon how good your SSDs are. Uh, the performance of the cluster is dependent on that. Like mm. for any other, any database, that's the same way, right? So these are the, some of the uh, uh, like trade-offs we have on the storage side. So pre-provisioning, obviously it kind of, uh, it's more manual uh, than dynamic provisioning. Dynamic provisioning can, uh, provides you more easier way of spinning up the cluster. But when you go to production, having some control of what kind of SSDs you use, uh, we kind of, uh, uh, like recommend using a local storage. And quick question here from the chat. Yeah. They're wondering if this requires block storage or does file or object storage work as well? Uh, it requires file, st file storage. Okay, so perfect. we use um, like any MVME uh, attached uh, storage that I, like EBS is fine and our Google PD uh, disk or persistent disk, right? That's what they call it. So uh, that's what we use. Excellent. Okay, uh, when it comes to database itself, there's kind of three categories. Like first thing uh, for us, at least in a distributed SQL database, we wanted to take care of uh, uh, the disk performance. Disk performance is super important for us. So that's why uh, there are like different decisions that we had we made where we provided uh, the capability for choosing the storage, uh, storage of their choice. And also, uh, we provided different ways of uh, mounting the storage, like or using the storage. And the second one being that for the data resiliency, because we don't want all the pods to be deployed in the same node, right? In a three-node cluster, like if I have a three-pod T-server or three-pod cluster, if all the pods goes on to a single uh, VM, so then uh, there is no point in resiliency there, right? Like if I lose that node, obviously, like I'm losing the entire uh, cluster. So for that, 
uh, obviously we have built bunch of anti affinity rules so that uh, the pods uh, gets distributed correctly and also whenever we are deploying like a multi uh, like in a particular region multi zone deployments we kind of uh, read uh, the labels that are given to a node to determine where that pod has to go uh, things like that all those things are uh, taken care when we are deploying the cluster using our operator so these are like pretty seamless uh for a developer so as a developer all i need to do is like specify the bunch uh, different regions that i want uh, or uh, different zones that i want to deploy my cluster in so and then uh, yugabyte internally takes care of deploying the pods on these nodes or across these uh, zones so those things we uh, we do it based on the anti affinity rules that we build in our uh, uh, stateful set deployments so I don't want to totally throw you off, but I have a, a few more questions. I know we're getting a yeah, long yeah, time. So if you want to pound through it, go for it. But otherwise, I'll, I'll ask a, a few questions. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, this is all I had. Like, few other things that I want to talk about is the day two operations, like uh, a database perspective, how we handle. Like, you can go ahead and ask, uh, ask questions for me. Yeah, mainly one thing I was wondering if you could talk to us about is... Yeah just different use cases you've seen. I know you met, you touched on it a little bit in the beginning and when is this going to be something that I want to use and when is it something that potentially it's not for my my needs right now, right? Correct. Uh, so for now, what we are saying, uh, our uh, CQL, like as I said, we have two APIs, right? One is a CQL API and a SQL API. So SQL API is a straight NoSQL replacement if you require uh, transactionality in your data access. So there are like workloads, there's like a lot of uh, workloads out there who use NoSQL, but they are, they are struggling with uh, a non-transactional uh, way of uh, NoSQL works, right? But if you, ha if you have a use case where uh, transactionality or the consistency of the data access is super important, you can go start using SQL. Uh, gigabytes and SQL. For SQL, uh, this is uh, a little bit, uh, uh, there's like few other caveats to using SQL. So right now, as I said, it is a Postgres SQL compliant, right? So if you go to Postgres, uh, there's like a lot of, uh, 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 there are like a considerable amount of ecosystems that are there in Postgres, like different uh, packages. There's like a lot of packages that we have, uh, Postgres has. So we don't have the complete, uh, 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 let's just say, parity with Post PostgreSQL yet. So we are uh, targeting all the new age uh, cloud native applications that are planning to re-architect their existing relational database so that uh, it can have like a domain specific data access, right? If you are doing that kind of relational workload, we are expecting SQL to, uh, SQL to go there. If you have a database system where you perform like a lot of joins and have a lot of procedures and things like that, we don't, uh, we don't feel comfortable yet for those kind of use cases. Hmm. Awesome. Uh, that's where we are actively working on because that's where we want to get to. We want to like be in the same realm of uh, oracles and Postgres of the world. So we are not there yet. And I see another question in the chat asking about when you would recommend customers run Yugabyte on Kubernetes versus other deployment options. 
uh, <laughs> that's a really good question. So uh, that's that actually uh, uh, has uh, two answers to it. Like the product itself uh, works uh, works uh, fine on the on Kubernetes cluster, but we need to have the maturity that built into the ops team of uh, uh, the customer or uh, the development team who is uh, productionizing this on Kubernetes itself, right? So you can burn yourself very quickly if you don't know what you're doing on Kubernetes. So th those things are super important. Like you can very quickly go ahead and deploy the cluster, but what about the day to management, right? Like how easy for you to deploy, uh, like uh, maintain your backup, restore and things like that. So if you have maturity of maintaining a Kubernetes cluster itself, or the Kubernetes environment itself, then I feel I strongly advise or strongly recommend deploying it on Kubernetes, uh, given that you have all the uh, high, uh, high availability on your, uh, uh, like even on, in your uh, network layer and uh, disk layer, if you have all those things built into your Kubernetes cluster, then I think you can strict, uh, you can easily deploy a operational database on Kubernetes. So- and I yeah, think you yeah. said it perfectly there, you know, and that's kind of why we're here, right? Like you can burn yourself really easily on Kubernetes and that's what we're doing here. We're trying to learn and share yeah. this information so we don't get burnt or uh, we at least see how others got burnt and then we can learn from their mistakes. <laughs> totally, obviously, right? Like uh, I've been uh, doing this from 2017, like trying to run databases on Kubernetes. Uh, it's not like uh, being... Uh, happy path always there's been some roadblocks there's been a lot of back and forth with customers so it's, it's kind of an ongoing conversation yeah and along those lines that same question i like to ask people when they're on here is can you tell us a war story do you have any stories of when you or somebody that you know or a customer that won't get named got burnt uh i mean uh <laughs> Uh, I, uh, let me just say this, right? I cannot give out names and things like that. Uh, obviously the point one or the V1 versions, uh, has been, uh, challenging, uh, like back, back then, like when we were working with, uh, confluence of the world, like first thing, obviously we started moving all the messaging brokers, right? Like everybody wants to move their message brokers there. Uh, so we had uh, we have had situations where uh, uh, due to the flakiness of the underlying infrastructure itself uh, we have had issues like if you if you have uh, a disk which is not able to reattach to a pod obviously you have an outage so we we ran into some some situations like that pre CSI so uh, however the impact wasn't that great because. Not a lot of people are running their entire workload on Kubernetes yet. That at at, at least the customers that I've worked uh, worked with, so they will have like 20% of the traffic going to a Kubernetes cluster, or the rest going uh, somewhere else, right? Uh, whatever the other deployments they have. Mm -hmm. So now, uh, as we see more customers using, like I saw recently, like HBOs of the world, they ran their entire uh, like during the Game of Thrones. Uh, times right like the entire traffic was getting served uh, through uh, their kubernetes deployment so that was pretty awesome like they kind of talked about that in kubecon in 2019 so 
but still they were only deploying stateless workloads. Like stateful workloads is like starting now from, uh, to the next two, three years, how people adopt stateful workloads is uh, the ones. So we have, we have customers who are running uh, stateful workloads on Kubernetes, but th those are all like startups. So startups are uh, easily uh, they easily persuaded to run on Kubernetes than enterprises. And when you go to enterprises, and also it's a database, you need to have a lot of other things around the, around that because you need to have compliance built in, you need to have, uh, security built in, all those things uh, comes into picture. And that's where uh, we are trying to have more adoption. That's the reason we want to do such uh, meetups so uh, we can have more customers try out and uh, put it into production. Beautiful. Well, if anyone wants to continue the conversation with you, I saw you just jumped into our Slack channel. And if anyone wants to try out Yogabyte DB, there are the links right there. We'll also put them into the show description if you're listening to this. Uh, and also, like, if you're anybody interested in, uh, 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 sorry to get you off, Dimitri. Like, I just wanted to uh, do this. I was told by my marketing people to uh, give a shout out for this thing. Uh, so if anybody is uh, looking to in interested in doing distributed SQL or uh, hardcore uh, software engineering problems, so we are hiring actively. We are a Series B company. Like if you are uh, uh, if you are anywhere based out of in the US or Europe, I think you are when you are doing in Europe these days. So you can reach out to us on Yogabyte Careers. There's like some open positions out there, and uh, if you want to contribute, you can join our community as well. Excellent. That is yeah. great to hear. Always love that. Hear you're hiring in times like these. So if anybody out there is looking to join the team, reach out. And Nikhil, I just got to say thank you so much for joining yeah, us perfect. today, for explaining what you're doing with Yogabyte. I could have talked to you for a little bit longer, but I guess yeah. I shouldn't have had that two minutes of music playing in the beginning so we could have <laughs> taken advantage of all of the time. Next time we chat, I will do that for sure. Um, and so everyone that is joining us and here with us, thank you all for listening in. We are here next week, same place, same time. We're going to be talking with Ren Lee of Arista. So Nikhil, thanks again. Everybody so, out there, really appreciate you listening and we will see you next week. Take care, everyone. Thanks. Bye. It was awesome.